Hey y'all, and welcome to the Feasting on Truth podcast. I'm Erin Warren, and we are feasting on the Gospel of Mark in a study called Unexpected Savior. And I'm so glad that you are here. Each week as I study and prepare, I continue to fall more and more in love with this gospel. Mark often uses the words astonished, amazed, and marveled to describe people's response to Jesus throughout the book. And that honestly describes my response as well. These stories that we have um, translated in isolation mean so much more when we pull back and see the big picture of Mark um, as he explains who Jesus is and why he came. And y'all, this week is no exception. If you want more information on this study, you can go to feastingontruth.com slash Mark. And before I get into our teaching, I also wanted to let y'all know that I have a really exciting announcement coming up um, in the next week or so um, that is going out to my email list. So if you are not signed up for Feasting on Truth emails, I encourage you to go to feastingontruth.com, scroll down a little bit on that homepage, and you'll see a place where you can sign up to get emails. And as a thank you, I will send you um, the first chapter of my book, Feasting on Truth, Savor the Life-Giving Word of God for free. All right, let's get to Mark 4, because it is one of my favorite subjects in Scripture, the purpose and power of the Word of God. Hey y'all, welcome to, I think officially week five of our um, Feasting on True Study, Unexpected Savior, an inductive Bible study on the Gospel of Mark. And we are going to be feasting on Mark chapter four today, but um, I always want to kind of do a little bit of review just so that we're always kind of resetting that lens and making sure that we are studying um, through the lens with with which Mark intends us to. I think one of our temptations we've talked about with the gospel and Mark is that um, very often we see these short snippet stories and we want to go, okay, what does this story mean? What does this story mean? What does this story mean? And so um, being able to kind of pull back out and see the structure with which Mark writes has been um, so fascinating, truthfully, for me. Um, I find myself each week just in awe of the masterful thread that he pulls throughout these sections. Um, Mark is writing to show who Jesus is and why he came, what his mission was. Um, and he, uh, we call it the unexpected savior because uh, Mark is challenging the expected ideal of the Messiah. Um, we see him play with irony. We see him play with this insider outsider, which is usually backwards of what we anticipate um, we last week in Mark chapter three had our first Markin sandwich, which we get another one this week. I'm really excited to uh, feast on that as well. Um, but he continually shows Jesus not as this conquering king, not as the one who came to do whatever we want him to do, but um, as a man of sorrows and a servant. We very often we see his divine grief. We saw that last week. Um, we see him serving, we see him, um, the humility of Jesus. These first eight chapters really focus on answering the question, who is Jesus? And so we are seeing this theme, the strong theme of what he has authority over, where Mark is continually pointing to the authority that Jesus has, because his authority proves that he is God, um, because the authority that he has um, is the authority that God has. So he is continually kind of pointing toward that. Um, and last week, we, um, in the last couple of weeks, really, we talked about Sabbath, um, but this idea that Jesus came to restore what was broken. Um, he came to defeat Satan. That was what we saw in that Mark and Sandwich last week about how he came to bind the strong man so that he could plunder and take back the captives. And those captives are us. And so we're really thankful for that. And today we're going to get to see um, what it is, um, his kingdom, and what it means for us as we um, are uh, planted seeds, the seeds of his word are planted in us. So um, let's, let's do some gardening tonight. Um, but before we do, let me open us up in prayer. Oh, Father, you are a good God. You are a deliberate God, and you are a God who um, is a masterful gardener, Lord, who grows good things, Lord, in the good soil. And so, Lord, we just pray, God, that we would be 
daughters who have ears to hear tonight, Lord, that we would have eyes to see, minds to perceive, hearts to understand, Lord, that we would um, open your word and more than just understand it, Lord, but that we would see you in it. Um, teach us who you are and let us um, be changed because of that, Lord. Um, I pray that you overcome my faults. Lord, you overcome my humanity. You overcome my sin. Lord, I stand under the authority of your word. I pray that it is your word and your word only that goes out tonight and that it would fall on the good soil and produce good fruit and abundant harvest, Lord, in the hearts of these women. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, we, as I said, are coming to Mark chapter four. So let's get right to it. And we are actually going to start with um, these incredible parables. So we have this theme of parables this week. Again, this is verse one. He began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea, and a whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. In his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and it immediately sprang up, since it had um, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grains. And other seeds fell into the good soil, produced grain growing up and increasing um, and yielding 30 fold and 60 fold and a hundred fold. And he said, he who has ears, let him hear. And when he was alone with those around him, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God for those. Um, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do um, you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes the word, takes away the word that is sown to them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while then when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word immediately fall away and others are the ones sown among the thorns and they are the ones who hear the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful but those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So I had you this week look up the word parable in, um, in the dictionary. So Merriam-Webster defines parable as a usually short, fictitious story that illustrates a moral attitude or a religious principle. So it's a kind of short, not necessarily true story, um, but illustrates a, a, a principle or a message. Um, the Greek word comes from a root word meaning, um, two root words meaning close beside and to cast. Um, helps word studies describes it as a teaching aid cast alongside the truth being taught. So um, if you the word is parabole. And if you look at it, it, it looks very similar to um, hyperbole. So hyperbole is this overinflation of truth. Um, parabole is the goes alongside truth. So think of parallel lines. So it is kind of a parallel truth to help kind of illustrate this truth. Um, the NIV cultural background study Bible says this, because most of Jesus's hearers 
were rural Galileans, Jesus's stories tend to be more agrarian and less addressed to the elite than were the rabbinic parables. Jesus's parables, unlike those rabbis, also tend to subvert traditional values, sometimes in shocking ways. Like later rabbis, Jesus apparently sometimes recycled or reapplied more traditional storylines as Jesus's parables sometimes resemble other ancient Jewish stories. Parables were like sermon illustrations, but they often made little sense without being connected to a sermon because Jesus often offered the illustrations independently, interpreting the parables only privately to his disciples afterwards. They served as riddles to the crowds, inviting the hearers to consider Jesus's point. So I know that was kind of a long quote, but it was such a great explanation of what parables were. We see parables throughout all of the gospels, um, but to kind of set aside what they actually meant, um, and, and that understanding of the kind of alongside story, um, they're kind of like sermon illustrations. I love how they described it that way, um, but they don't make sense unless connected to a sermon. And so we see here how um, Jesus um, is giving this parable, but he only just explains it to those who are with him privately to his disciples. And it says in there to those that were with them as well. Um, he invited them into this um, understanding of what the parable meant. So we have this temptation, I think, when we read things like that, to think that God is um, withholding understanding. But we have to remember his omniscience. Um, and I've talked about this um, at different times before, but we can often see God's response or Jesus's response to people helps us understand their hearts because he's omniscient. He can see their hearts. And so um, it is common in that day to only reveal the deeper meaning um, of when one perceived, when a teacher or a rabbi perceived that they were ready to receive it. And so Jesus not giving the parable meaning to the entire crowd um, tells us that the entire crowd was not willing to receive it. We see that he reveals it only um, to the close disciples and those who are with him. Um, and we see here him quote Isaiah 6, chapter 9, um, talking about being perceiving but not hearing. Um, Matthew Henry says this of that um, passage. He says, God sends Isaiah to foretell the ruin of his people. Many hear the sound of God's word, but do not feel the power of it. God sometimes in righteous judgment gives men up to the blindness of their mind because they will not receive the truth in the love of it. And so we see very often that, that there are people who hear the word and, um, and do not feel the power of it. And so he waits to reveal the truth until those that are ready to receive it, who can understand the power of his words are with him. Um, and so it's those around him with the 12. So there were some from the crowd who remained with Jesus even after the crowd had gone. And I want you to keep that in mind as we continue. So similar to last week, I'm gonna talk first about the secondary meaning before we go to the primary meaning. Um, and this is something that, you know, it's in your book and it's something we often talk about. Um, this was a great week for a chart. So we have a chart in your book. Um, I love charts. It really helps us organize our thoughts and to really see all of that. Um, so similar to what we talked about last week with the lowering of the friends, uh, the friends lowering their um, paralyzed friend to Jesus's feet through the roof. Um, we want to read this and think about us. So I um, I want to first kind of break down each of these, and then we're going to come back to the primary meaning. So the word is what is sown. So we see Jesus say the word is sown. So the seeds are the word of God. Um, what's really interesting is that the, the word seed is not actually in the original Greek of this parable, um, but what is sown is the word. Um, so we have the seeds that are sown along the path and the birds come and devour it. Um, and then Jesus explains that this is Satan immediately coming and taking the word away. Um, it has no meaning. 
um, and, and, and it's gone. Um, the second one is we see so seeds, the word sown on rocky ground. There's not much soil. It immediately comes up, but as soon, um, it has very little root, but as soon as the sun um, scorches it, it withers away. Um, Jesus explains the meaning. These are those who hear the word. They receive it with joy. They're like, yes, I, this is it. I want to follow Jesus. Um, but because it doesn't have a deep root, as soon as trials and hardship arise, particularly um, in conjunction with that faith that they now profess, then it, it falls away. Um, there's the, this um, incredible passage. It's one of my favorite passages in all the scripture in John chapter six. Um, it actually is a conversation that takes place after the feeding of the 5,000. It's where we see Jesus reveal himself, where he says, I am the bread of life. And so he's explaining who he is, um, that he is the satisfaction. These people wanted bread for their stomachs, but he was offering them um, bread for eternity. And and there's this moment in John 6, 60, where it says many of his disciples heard it. Now that's not the 12. Um, there were others who were like we see here in this passage who were following Jesus. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? They're like, this is hard. I don't understand this. I don't, you know, this is crazy. And then just six verses later in John 6, 66, which y'all, every time I write this verse and every time I see that, I think it's like, is it even, co it's not coincidence that this is John 6, 66. Um, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Y'all, these are the people who hear the word. They're following Jesus. They're like, yes, but then it gets hard. And they're like, mm, I'm out. Um, I think it, they are some of the saddest words in all of scripture. Um, and then we see the third one, the seeds that are sown among the thorns. Um, these are ones that begin to grow, but because the thorns are there, it chokes the plant and it does not yield fruit. Um, these are those that hear the word, they begin to grow, but the world chokes it out. And y'all, I think a lot of times we think of the world kind of oppressing um, it, but note the idolatry in here. This is the deceitfulness and the desire for things of the world overtakes the desire for God and his word. Um, Dr. David Swanson, who is um, a, a one of my uh, favorite pastors, he said he talks about idolatry in this way, that it's the um, disordered affections of our heart. Um, and I... I love the way that he phrases that because that is what sin is. That's what idolatry is. It's it's when we should have at the highest affection for, for God and for his word and for a relationship with him. But we allow the things of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, y'all. We let the things of this world um, overtake our desire for God. But the, the world always, sin always over promises and under delivers. Um, and in First John 2, uh, 15 through 17, this was one of your cross references for this work this week. Um, John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Um, Matthew Henry describes this ache for the things of the world. Um, he calls it listening to King's stomach. When we want the things that will fill our stomach more than we want the things that will fill our soul. Um, and those are the, 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 the seeds that are sown, the plants that are choked by the thorns. And so then we have the last one. We have the seeds sown on good soil. They produce grain and it increases, it grows, and it yields 30, 60, 100 times. It yields fruit abundantly. Um, and we, Jesus explains it, that the word, um, these are those who hear the word, 
who accept the word. I think that's a really key and they bear fruit. Y'all, this is faith. And I love that faith is a theme throughout this chapter that we are going to continue to see over and over. Um, God's word has purpose. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, it's one of the pillars of feasting on truth. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth and it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word goes out. He sows the seeds and it accomplishes the purpose for us. It is a life giving word of God. Um, and so that's a theme. Again, we're going to keep that in the back of our head as we continue reading. So we have these, this kind of secondary, and honestly, most of the time when we hear a message on this passage, that's what we focus on. And we think about which soil we have in our heart. And while that's important, um, I want, I, I want us to back up and I want us to see Mark's primary message here because this is also what's going to help us shift from more me-centered scripture reading to God-centered scripture reading. Y'all, this is part of our Mark and Sandwich tonight. So we see this kind of theme where he's, he's on the sea and he's teaching parables and then Mark stops, explains the parable, and then he comes back to more parables. Um, and James R. Edwards, uh, who wrote the gospel according to Mark, says um, the parable of the sower is usually interpreted as a parable of soils. I thought that was such a great point. Seeing the hardened ground, rocks, thorns, and good soils of, as examples of right and wrong discipleship. But the parable is more than a metaphor of human psychology or attitudinal states. As interesting as those are to us, the parable represents the historical inbreaking of God's kingdom in Jesus, the sower of the gospel. The astounding harvest in verse 8 is an important clue that the growth is not owning to human activity, but to God's providential power. God is at work, hidden and unobserved in Jesus and the gospel to produce a yield wholly disproportionate to human prospects and merit. Y'all, Jesus came to sow a gospel of truth. He came to, to um, have the kingdom. We saw that's our theme verse um, where he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That's Mark 1, 14 through 15. Repent and believe in the gospel. He has come to sow the good news. He has come to sow the word of God. He um, is the word. Y'all, Jesus is the word made flesh. And he came to, um, he came for us. And we saw that last week. He came for the captives. He came um and so we can be the fertile, receptive soil, um, but it's only because his word is true and useful and productive and powerful. And it is only in him that we can grow the fruit of faith. Nothing this world has to offer will grow us. Um, and so now Mark is going to come back and join this conversation at the sea. And he's going to give three more parables that further explain this topic of God's multiplication of his word um, and his power. So um, the first one we have is a lamp under a basket. And I'm gonna read all three of these and then kind of give this overall uh, kind of meaning behind it. And he said to them is a lamp, this is verse 21, is a lamp brought in to be under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest nor is anything secret except to come to light. So we see him kind of pointing to this idea that the secret is not going to be a secret forever. And then we see this repeated phrase again, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
verse 26. Um, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises day and night and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And then finally, our parable of the mustard seed, verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. And it puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make its nest in the shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Um, so these three parables all carry this theme of multiplication and growth as it relates to the kingdom. So we have him sowing the kingdom, this inbreaking, as James Edwards calls it, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And then we see this idea um, of multiplication and growth. So we have the lamp, this secret kingdom um, that is secret now, but like a light, it shall be revealed. Um, and we see that repeated. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he says, pay attention and listen. Um, the word seed, um, and then we see this word seed. So the word seed does appear in this section. Um, Merriam-Webster defines seed as the grains or ripened ovules of plants used for sowing. Uh, the Greek word very similarly means seed for sowing. Here's what's really fascinating to me is that the definition of seed implies sowing. Um, you would think you would define a seed as something that has the potential for life, but that's not the definition. Y'all, seeds in a packet, um, <laughs> I, at one time in my life, um, was what I would call a fake farmer, where I thought I could have a garden. And um, I had some successes, I'm not going to lie, there was, you know, I had a great sweet potato crop, um, and I had a great tomato crop. Um, however, I also thought um, I bought, I got those as plants, you know, or, or I grew from a sweet potato. Um, I thought that I could get seeds and grow plants. <laughs> and um, one, it was not very successful, but two, I was like, I'll just buy some of these seeds and, and then I'll, I'll plant them. And, and do you know where most of those seeds still are? In the packet, in my garage. <laughs> Seeds are useless unless they're sown. The word has to go out. Um, the definition of sowing um, from Merriam-Webster is to plant seed for growth, especially by scattering. Um, it's for growth. And I loved this one, to set something in motion. He sows his word to set something in motion. He sows his word for growth. Um, and, and it is not anything that, that this sower in, did, it was what God, our creator did, um, in developing the system in the earth. He didn't go out there and literally the sower starts stretching the stock of the grain, the Lord, it is in his power to grow. Um, and we see that in the kingdom as well. Um, we see this theme of multiplication that something very small becomes something big with the mustard seed. Um, and I keep coming back to this phrase that we have seen time and time again throughout Mark, that personal ministry is hard with a crowd. And we have seen that here as he draws away from the crowd to explain the parable, um, as he takes something as small, but with the intention that this small thing, the small kingdom that he is establishing is going to grow, not just into, you know, a nice something, a nice tree, but something that is grand, something that is huge, something that is abundant, something that is 30, 60, 100 fold 
what we thought. Um, he says, um, we have that repeated phrase. It's in both nine and verse 23, um, saying that if anyone has hears, let him hear. Um, the Christian Standard Bible um, says, then he said, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Um, the New Living Translation says, then he said, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Um, so there's this, um, we tend to think of, you know, and my kids will do this to me all the time, y'all. They'll be like, you're not listening to me. And I'm like, no, I'm listening. But there's a difference between listening and and um, and understanding and doing. And so um, just because, and usually it's because I'm not doing what they want me to do. And I'm like, just because I'm not doing what you want doesn't mean I'm not listening. Um, this is backwards of how God works. So just... <laughs> <laughs> probably not a great example, but I'm trying to show the distinction between listening and this perceiving and understanding that they're talking about here. Here's what I find really fascinating. So the Greek word for ear, the definition is not the body part. Um, while that's certainly a part of it, it is also when they talked about the ear, it is um, metaphorically equivalent to the faculty of perceiving with the mind and the faculty of understanding and knowing. So when they talk about the ear, have ears to hear, it is saying that it is more than just merely hearing what God says. Um, we see this echoed in James where he says, be more than hearers of the word, but doers. It's allowing what you hear to sink into your mind, um, to understand and to know. It's why when I pray, um, for us before that I ask that we have ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to perceive and hearts to hearts to perceive and the minds to understand so that we are under like the full body experience of understanding what is words and I love the culmination of this repeated theme through this chapter in verse 33 when it says they were able to hear it he told them as they were able to hear it they did hear his word and it did sink in and they did understand. Um, Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. He is his word going out is how we hear. And the result of hearing is faith. Um, and I Y'all, like y'all know I love the word. Y'all know that I love scripture and I love talking about the power of scripture. Um, we already quoted Isaiah 55, 9 and 10. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Um, y'all, the wheat, the mustard seed, all the things that he represents in this parable, they all pass away. Isaiah 48, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. His word is eternal. His word will endure. His word far outlasts anything that is sown on this earth. And I love the promise of his true word going out. Um, and in this understanding, y'all, that his word is is productive, it's it's useful. Um, his word is true. We've seen throughout this that his um, his word instills faith in us. Um, his word is eternal, y'all. And then Mark shows us a a story, a miracle, to help us understand just how powerful his word is. Um, verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side and leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat just as he was. Um, and other boats were with them and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so the boat was already filling. But he was in the storm asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? 
Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Now, before I jump too much into the passage, I want to very quickly kind of go through some context around the Sea of Galilee, because um, the geography really helps us understand scripture um, a little bit more. So we have this, um, and this is, all this information is coming from the Holman Illustrated Guide to Biblical Geography by um, Paul H. Wright. Um, and um, so the Sea of Galilee goes by many names in scripture. Um, in Matthew and Mark, it, it's the Sea of Galilee. Um, and so it kind of depends on the author. That doesn't mean that there's contradiction within scripture. It just, depending on the author and the audience, like um, people from different cities would call it different things in that day. Um, at its longest, it is 13 miles. And at its widest, it is seven and a half miles across. So it's it's smaller than most people um, would picture, um, uh, but it's called a sea. I thought this was really interesting, most likely because in Hebrew, because the Jewish people were mostly desert dwellers and not around different bodies of water. There's only one Hebrew word for a large body of water. Um, and so most likely the, the writers are writing um, with that in mind, um, within the Greek language, there are differentiated words because Greece is a collection of islands. Um, they love the water, and so they would have a they would have different words. So in general, though, it's actually more like a lake than it is an actual sea. Um, the Jordan River is the main source, and most people actually kind of consider it a wide section of the Jordan River because the Jordan River comes in the north and out the south of the Sea of Galilee. Um, the surrounding area is culturally diverse. And we've talked about this a little bit with, um, as we've kind of talked a little bit as we see him moving around, but, but it is deliberate that Jesus would pick the area of Galilee and particularly Capernaum to be kind of his home base. Um, there's even a cove within Capernaum where, um, the sound amplifies really well. So we see that in this passage at the beginning where Jesus sits on a boat and speaks to the crowd on the land, how it kind of helps carry the sound. Um, there are three different political districts along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Um, so we have Galilee proper under Herod Antipas. Um, on the west, we have um, Galantis on the northeastern is controlled by Philip the Tetrarch. We're going to see these names. You probably we've already seen the name Herod. Um, and then the south and east is called the Decapolis, um, and it was Hellenistic, mostly independent cities, but um, under Roman rule. Um, and there was a major trade route that went through this region. Um, it is a mix of Jewish and Gentiles all around the region of Galilee, all around the Sea of Galilee. And that is why it's an ideal place for Jesus to focus his ministry. He's so deliberate in that. Um, I don't really have time to get into it. There's some fascinating things about the vegetation, about how plants that are winter plants and plants that are summer plants, um, that like cold weather and ones that like hot weather can all grow in this around the Sea of Galilee. And I think y'all that like kind of points to like what <laughs> this theme that I think there's a connection there between what we're talking about tonight. Um, but here's what I, here's the biggest thing um, that I want to talk about. So the lake um, sits below sea level um, and it's almost completely surrounded by hills. At the highest, there's, there, there is high as 1300 feet above the surface of the water um, and it creates its own wind. So there's wind that um, blows from outward to the center in the late hours, but then as the water warms up, the, the wind reverses and goes from the center out. But here's what's um, even more so, and I'm gonna read. Um, well, I don't. Have to, I'm gonna put the quote um, in the notes. So if you are signed up for the alongside guide that goes with this, you'll get this full quote. But Paul H. Wright in the Holman Illustrated Guide to Biblical Geography explains how the wind from the Mediterranean and the wind from the desert will come in and with force, almost like a wind tunnel, because of the high um, hills and cliffs around the Sea of Galilee, how very suddenly these massive winds 
kind of funnel tunnel straight in to the Sea of Galilee and will create storms um, with very um, with like with a lot of force. Um, I'm just going to read the end of his quote. He says, in both cases, so both from the Mediterranean and from the um, from the um, desert side as well. Um, in both cases, the result is the same. The water stirs up quickly. Local fishermen report that the highest waves they have experienced reach six feet, creating walls of water plenty high enough to swamp the low-slung fishing boats of the first century AD. So the boats of the day, they're not these huge boats. This is a, this is a lake, remember? So six feet, you think of like a, a six foot person, these waves, the boats are not even six feet high. And so very suddenly, these massive windstorms can kick up on the Sea of Galilee and suddenly six foot waves can be crashing. And that's what we see happen here. Isn't that so cool? Like I love connecting what actually happens in the geography with what we see in scripture. And so um, Jesus, you know, there, we all know, we know the story. Jesus is asleep and <laughs> all, all sorts of funny things. You know, people are thinking, you know, why is Jesus sleeping on a cushion, you know, and the waves are coming and everyone's panic and running. Um, but here's the point of the whole story. Jesus stands up and he speaks a word. He rebukes um, the word, the word, that word rebukes, um, he re Oh, I'm getting so tongue-tied. He rebukes the waves. And the word here has this meaning of restraint. He restrains the wind. He says silence. He says be still. That Greek word means to muzzle. His word is powerful enough to calm the, the craziest storm. Y'all, his word has power. One of my favorite verses that talks about the power of the voice of the Lord, of the word of the Lord, is Psalm 29. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. Um, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in splendor, in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes um, Lebanon to skip like a calf and Sarayan like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare and all in his temple cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people and may the Lord bless his people with peace. Y'all, the voice of the Lord has power over the water. The voice of the Lord has power over the growth and the voice of the Lord has power over life. The voice of the Lord goes out and he is the one that gives strength to his people and gives peace to his people. The disciples are filled with fear. That is their response. They look at him and go, who is this? Even the wind and the seas obey him. Um, the disciples, um, I think this is a reminder to the original audience of who the disciples were when they began in their faith. Um, if you'll remember that there are some, there's some speculation that um, they had put the disciples on pedestals. Remember, this is written to first and maybe early second generation Christians in the church. Um, that they they see these giants of faith, you know, they they're in jail. There you have Peter and Paul and John and 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 these you know giants and and in the face of persecution, in the face of their their faith is wavering. They can see y'all the fruit of the disciples' faith. They can see the giant mustard. <laughs> tree. They can see the seed that has been sown on good soil. And I think this is a good reminder of the origins of their faith, that they stood in a boat with Jesus, watched him calm a sea and went, who 
is this. The seed, the word of God had gone out and planted in them. And the Lord was beginning to do a work and growing them in their faith, just as he was for them, just as he is for us. He is the truth. He is the source of faith. Understanding and knowing comes through the word of Christ and growth happens when we come to his word with humble hearts and minds, when we accept it and then we allow it to work in us. James R. Edwards finishes um, talking about that section I read earlier in the gospel according to Mark. Insiders are those for whom the fellowship and will of Jesus take precedence over everything else. They believe, they hear, believe, and bear fruit, which is Mark's definition of faith. They can only hear by being with Jesus, and to them the mystery is revealed. Y'all, we need proximity to Jesus. We need time with Jesus. This is why the word This is why I'm so passionate about Bible study. This is why I'm so passionate about inductive Bible study, because we need to be coming to the word of God for ourselves, not coming to hear someone else's revelation about scripture, but that we are doing the hard work of sitting with the pages of scripture open with the living, breathing word of God before us and the Holy Spirit teaching us. Because it is only when we do that, when we allow his word to take precedence over everything else, no matter what this world offers, no matter what deceit it tries to trick us with, no matter how many times Satan tries to come and steal away, um, it is only by being with Jesus that the mystery is revealed. And we have to be willing to take time. I was talking to someone just today about the importance um, of, of spending time in the word and then spending time with others gathered around the word. Um, we often think we're so busy. I can't make it to Bible study or I've got to do this and this and I just don't have time. Y'all, there's nothing more important. Nothing takes precedence over time with Jesus because everything else, everything else we do is flows down from that source. Everything that we want to do in life, everything that he calls us to do, um, whether that is in our jobs, whether that is as parents or grandparents or um, as a friend, um, as a sister in Christ within our churches, whatever it is that he has called us to do, that we are not going to be able to do it unless we first sit and get in the word and spend time with Jesus. That John 6 passage that I told you about after those disciples walk away and no longer walk with him, John 6, 67, Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Y'all, he has the words of eternal life. They go out from his mouth with purpose. The seed is planting, planted in us um, and it grows. And the fruit that it grows is beneficial both for us and for the church and for the spread of the gospel. Jesus is God and the sum of his word is truth. And because Jesus, God is truth, his word is truth. So y'all let's be women who have ears to hear, hearts to perceive, minds to understand the life-giving truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Will y'all pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I just um, am so grateful that um, you gave us your word. Lord, that you are so clear with us who you are and what you came to do. Lord, let us not forget. Let us lay aside whatever it is that our flesh desires. Lord, whatever it is that this world offers and tempts us with, let us not um, cling to it, but instead cling to your word. And may you do a great work in and through us, Lord. Let the seeds of your word that are planted and sown in us cause life and growth and multiplication, Lord. 
um, 30, 60, 100 fold, Lord, so that not only are we growing up in maturity, but Lord, that we are bringing others along with us, bringing glory to you, Lord. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. cannot say it enough, y'all. Don't stop studying God's Word. It is so worth the time and effort. I'd even argue that it's the most valuable way to spend your time. Hebrews 10, 23-25 echoes this, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is not just a call to gather. It's a call to gather around His Word. We need both. We need the personal study and we need the connection of study in community. Like those that were around Jesus with the 12 in verse 10, y'all let's press in. Let's be in close proximity to Jesus. Let's not just hear a good word and walk away. Let's keep pursuing Him. Let's keep studying His Word together. The more we do it, the more He reveals, the more we will know, the more we realize we don't know, the more we want to know, the more we keep coming to His Word and we continue to gather. I think that's what Jesus meant in verses 24 and 25 when He said, With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For uh, For the one who has will be given more. Let's continue um, pursuing him in his word because his word has purpose and it is powerful. Next week we feast on Mark chapter 5 and yet another Mark and sandwich. This one's a little more obvious um, but again I want us to press in with humble and teachable hearts um, taking what we already know about these passages and just being willing to lay that aside, asking the Holy Spirit to teach us and guide us anew as we come to his powerful and purposeful word. I'll see you next week.